Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Public Work, a Public Humanities podcast. I am Jim McGrath. I am a postdoctoral fellow in digital public humanities at the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage here at Brown University. I am normally joined by Amelia Golcheski. She is not here because she is on spring break. And it must be very nice to be on spring break. No, I'm just kidding. I am also on spring break, but I wanted to come in and do some editing and and record this lovely, insightful intro to the episode that you're about to hear, um, because we're really excited to share this episode with you. Um, So who are we hearing from this week, Amelia? Please don't answer, Amelia, because you're not here. And that would terrify me if another voice did answer. we are hearing from Kate Duffy. So Kate Duffy is a doctoral student, doctoral candidate here at Brown University in the American Studies Department. She is interested in 19th century American culture, and she focuses on the history of science, which is a really interesting research interest. Um, so we're talking to her because she was one of the participants in the Gallery Lab series of events that the Center for Public Humanities recently hosted. So for those of you who don't know, the Gallery Lab series was basically an opportunity given to students, community members, collaborators, people doing interesting public humanities or public history work on campus. Uh, It was an opportunity for them to stage short-term exhibitions, performances, pop-ups, various other things. So Kate and her collaborator, Eric Osheim, put together an event called the Phantom Archive. So that's the thing that we're going to hear from. And specifically, we're going to hear about Kate's use of archival materials in this Phantom Archive uh, performance. So it's it's a performance that focuses on some of the, the stories and, and histories and context of archival materials that Kate has come across, but not in the, the traditional way of, say, an academic form of writing or, or a publication. Uh, it's a more creative exploration of these contexts and and i think it's really exciting work and and it's stuff that it reminds me a bit of some of the creative uses of archival materials that i came across as a graduate student specifically the work of susan howe and ann carson where they're looking at archival media archival contexts archival forms of knowledge and then uh, responding to those various contexts with really creative projects um so kate and her collaborator uh, Eric are really interested in kind of the dreamlike spaces that that one might create around these archival objects. Uh, the the fact that the imagery does seem a bit cryptic when there are all these sort of gaps in the the history around them, and also you know Kate uses this word the the sort of weirdness of some of the archival materials that people come across when they they take the time to to look at these resources. Um, so. We hope you enjoy this conversation. It it goes into the sort of traditional uses of our archives and how Kate got interested in archives, but it does really spend a lot of time uh, thinking about the particular things that that Kate chose for this Phantom Archive performance and and what might be gained from taking this kind of approach to archival materials. Uh, so you're going to learn a bit about zoo history from some of the work that Kate has focused on in this performance. Uh, so apologies to the zoo history podcast out there if we're encroaching on your terrain. Uh, and then also uh, one of the other stories that is at the center of the Phantom Archive has to do with parables of tourism and, and the specific regional context of Martha's Vineyard. So I thought that was pretty interesting, too. So we hope you enjoy this conversation. We will be back again soon with uh, more Gallery Lab 
conversations, but also more conversations where our grad students are talking to practitioners in public history and public humanities, uh, digital humanities, other contexts um, to, to learn how they got into what they do and, and what's exciting about the ongoing work that's happening in the fields that they're a part of. Um, so stay tuned for that and stay tuned for Amelia to be back and talking when I am not talking and probably saying things that are more interesting. Um, so on that note, let's get into this interview. Um, but before I do that, uh, if you have questions, comments, um, Amelia will be back, so you don't have to email me, where's Amelia? She is coming back, so don't worry about that. Um, you can find us on Twitter at PublicWorkPod, or you can email us at PublicWorkPodcast at gmail.com. So enjoy this conversation with Kate, and we'll see you next time. All right, so this go-round on public work, we are talking to Kate Duffy, who is a PhD candidate in American Studies. Uh, and the particular thing we're talking about is her contribution to the Gallery Lab project, uh, which has been an ongoing series of experiments and exhibitions and, and events and performances. Um, and Kate's particular contribution to that is called the Phantom Archive, uh, Keeper of Beasts. Um, welcome, Kate. Hello, how are y'all doing? <laughs> Hopefully nobody answers that question. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, maybe to start, just tell me a little bit about um, what the Phantom Archive is. So the Phantom Archive is an experiment in historical storytelling. Uh, so we take stories that, um, that I may have come across in the tangents of my research, um, often about forgotten people or incidents, and we try to weave them into kind of a poetical, mysterious, theatrical experience, uh, experience with projected images and live ambient soundscapes. Um, and so it's also a collaboration with Eric Osheim, who produces the music live. He's, we, are, we are also a husband and wife team. Um, and so the Gallery Lab performance last week was really our debut. Oh, wow. That's great. So, um, I mean, you, you, you're saying here that this is kind of um, forgotten work or forgotten people that you're coming across in, in research. So maybe can you say a little bit about um, what that sort of research um, process is like and how it led you to this performative um, engagement with the archives? Uh, sure. So my focus is 19th century American culture and also history of science. Uh, so in the last few years of kind of working on those topics, um, you know, I'll be reading, say, uh, a historical newspaper that might make mention of something like a celebrity chimpanzee um, or, you know, it, or something that's just in the background. And what the Phantom Archive does is bringing it into the foreground and, and looking at these, these uh, people who maybe are not famous, who maybe were not remembered for very long, um, but kind of digging into their stories and what, it, what they mean. Um, so actually, uh, so for example, the, the, the celebrity chimpanzee story, which is one of the stories we shared last week, um, I actually came across it when I was working on a different project at Brown, um, which was an exhibition called The Lost Museum, where a group of graduate students and Steve Lubar um, and an artist named Mark Dion, we all kind of worked together to resurrect the Jinx Museum, which was a natural history museum. And... Uh, one of the things that was in the museum collection was something that was referred to as the plaster head of Mr. Crowley. And so we came across this and we were all thinking, who is Mr. Crowley? 
why is his plaster head in his natural history collection? And so I kind of start doing some searching and I uncovered this story of one of the first chimpanzees um, that was brought to America in the 1880s um, and how he became incredibly famous among people. He was uh, held in the Central Park Menagerie and he became just an incredibly popular attraction because everyone wanted to go see this chimpanzee. This is a, the time when people are debating Darwin. Um, and so he was, the, this, this chimpanzee, Mr. Crowley, was described as a missing link between animals and humans. And he could eat with a, a spoon and, and he shook hands with people and he had these human behaviors. And so it was just fascinating to people at the time who all thronged into the zoo to see him. So the story we told was kind of about his life and death and the significance um, of this uh, moment in American history and zoo history. So that's the kind of thing that uh, that we do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's so much to unpack just in, in that particular um, thing. Um, just a, a sort of quick clarification question. Um, Mr. Crowley, it's not connected to Aleister Crowley at all? It's just kind of... Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, no, although I think that is the first thing that comes up if you if you Google this, but I uh, know no relation. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. I, know. I, was, I, I was just thinking of the Ozzy Osbourne song, too, um, uh, sure. about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this it's it's interesting, though, to because um, because there ha there are different approaches that that various people have taken when they uncover these stories. Right. You could, um, you know, take this and and make it more visible in a even you know like a a journal article or some kind of uh form of of, of prose based storytelling so i guess i'm i'm curious as to to what you um mean by historical storytelling and and what sort of soundscapes uh and and live musical performance uh helps you explore with stories like mr crowley's story sure so um so in academic writing academic writing is very conditioned by argument where you need to be relating things in kind of a logical manner um, that's very strictly organized in a particular way. Um, and what the Phantom Archive does is it, is it opens up, for me, kind of a, a more dreamlike space where you can uh, put forth cryptic imagery and you can be a bit, uh, you can express more emotion or um, uh, there's room for sentiment and weirdness in a way that maybe there isn't often in in traditional academic writing. Uh, so it's for me, it's almost become this outlet for all these these things that I come across um, and just a, a different way of, of expressing um, thoughts or ideas about history that are maybe a bit more ambiguous than, uh, say, a journal article might be. And uh, the soundscapes are produced by Eric. So um, he will have a whole table of, of pedals, like guitar pedals and a mixer and little synthesizers. And so he is improvising live uh, these kind of droning, um, uh, yeah, again, dreamlike sounds that match the mood of, of the words um, as I'm narrating. And so we kind of work together to think through the emotions of the story and how his sounds will match up with the narration. That, that sounds fascinating. And um, were there particular points of, of influence for this kind of approach to, to archival or sort of dreamlike exploration? Were there artists or, or performers that, that you're both drawing on from this? Uh, sure. So I think we have some historical influences. So 19th century entertainments like the Panorama or the Magic Lantern Show, uh, where a narrator would be showing images uh, and, and giving a story to go along with them in the era before film. Um, but also, Eric and I, uh, 
we used to make experimental films together. Uh, this was well before graduate school. And so I was also kind of influenced by experimental filmmakers and a cinematic approach of, of montage. And Eric would always uh, produce the soundtracks for my movies. And so in a way, this is kind of revisiting uh, our older style of collaboration, but instead of video, it's a live performance. Yeah, and, and the other fascinating element of that is kind of the, the or multiple elements, the elements of improvisation, uh, the, the kind of ephemeral nature of the the performance itself. So how does, do those, are you interested in the sort of tensions that creates be, be, between those spaces and the, the maybe more permanent archival knowledge? Or, or is it just like the, these are the, um, I don't know, forms of performance or, or forms of music that, that you're just interested in before through this prior history? Hmm. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, we other influences might be, so we used to go to these ambient music shows in Philadelphia uh, where you would kind of just lie on the floor and they would show a silent film and they would just produce, it would just almost go on for hours, this kind of ambient sound, and you would kind of zone into the experience in a way. And it was it was very, it was live and ephemeral, and, and it was something that, where you kind of had to be there to uh, take it all in. Um, so I think that's that kind of influenced us. One thing that we did consider was whether we wanted this to be a podcast or if it should be a live show. And we're still debating that, um, but part of it, we, we partially kind of like the idea of, it happens, and if you are there, then you experience it, and then it's kind of over, uh, and then we move on to the next one. So uh, I think there's something special about the live experience here, um, especially uh, in thinking about those older 19th century entertainments that I mentioned, where it's very much kind of a, a dynamic experience between the performer and the, the people sitting there. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and so tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> uh that live experience um so so obviously there's the, the musical component um they're you know ba based on the description they're you know you're making use of imagery um what what kind of planning went into that uh you know do, do you want people sort of laying on the floor like in those sort of philadelphia contexts um have you thought about kind of like the the location the placement of the audience Could tell me a little bit about that sort of thought process and how it played out Sure. Uh, so originally we were thinking of this as, uh, as I mentioned before, bedtime stories. And so we were contemplating, should we have people lying on the floor? Should we encourage people to show up in pajamas with pillows um, and so forth? And we decided at least for the first one to have a more traditional setup with chairs. Although during intermission, we did serve milk and cookies, uh, which hopefully will be a tradition. Um, and, you know, it was... Um, one thing that did kind of happen was that we had arranged this as you know, two near two different stories with intermission, and uh, it turns out that like people in the audience really had a lot of questions, and so um, at the end we ha we ended up having a Q and A uh, with the audience because um, they just wanted more information, um, and so that we were kind of, we were debating like, huh, maybe um, you know we wouldn't have done that ex unless you know people had kind of requested it and so it kind of made us think should we be including more information or uh should we veer toward that more traditional academic side of have, if presenting information and then opening it up for discussion um so there was kind of a, a conversation afterward with the audience um, which was really fun and so so that that conversation was kind of just like 
clarification on images or individuals. I mean, it is interesting how kind of the move away from the academic approach in the context of, of doing this performance at, at Brown, kind of like the academics are, are still sitting there raising their hands like, wait, wait, wait a minute. We <laughs> we want to know the, the information, the details. I mean, not so much the argument, but maybe the, the historical um, context that, that your interest in ephemera or sort of dreamlike experiences uh, might be sidestepping or, or, or less interested in. Um, yeah, I mean, there is maybe a little bit of tension there because we purposely are presenting somewhat cryptic information and we're not necessarily filling in all the details. And so I think people were left with with questions. Um, and uh, and so that kind of leaves us wondering, like, you know, how many gaps should we fill in or, sh- or should we leave this a little bit more ambiguous? Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll be considering that for future performances. Yeah, that I I I'd love to to see how this develops. Um the one of the interesting things kind of what you're you're describing with your relationship to to these archival materials is this kind of um I don't know, interest in in dreamlike spaces or the sort of cryptic dimensions um of it. And and I'm curious as to um, did has that been informed by particular experiences in the the physical spaces of archives, or um, and and what? How did you get into doing this kind of archival work in the first place? Um, and and sort of, I don't know, thinking about the particular context you're you're encountering these works in, and how those contexts might seem different. Oh, well, so I think um, one influence on this was uh, the exhibition I mentioned earlier, yeah. the Lost Museum. So. We were working with a contemporary artist, um, and one of the things that we created was an installation uh, that was a period room of a taxidermist workshop. And so people would be walking through Rhode Island Hall, which is um, a building on Brown's campus, and you would suddenly be confronted with this this 19th century space with stuffed animals and an old desk in it, and there was something a little bit jarring or, or strange about it, and it kind of at least I imagine it kind of encourages people to stop and ponder and look and wonder. And there's this sense of, of curiosity where you, you don't necessarily have all the information, but you're kind of searching around looking for clues. And there's something that's really engaging about that, that particular experience where it's not formally didactic, um, but it is encouraging the viewer to, uh, to put together a mystery in some way. Um, so I think that that experience was really influential to me. Um, in terms of archives themselves, you know, you get a sense of just the, 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 the chaos that is history in a sense where, you know, if you read a history book, that's almost the refined version where, where someone has uh, taken out particular details and put them in order and made meaning of them. Whereas when you're sitting in an archive, you might be looking through box after box, thousands of pages, and there's so much going on there. Um, and you could really take your research in any direction. And, and there's a lot more um, going on behind the surface than is often obvious to maybe a, a reader later. Uh, and so I kind of, you know, I, I guess I, part of me wants to bring the, the reader back into the interpretive process and just tell them a, a, a sort of strange and unusual story and have them make meaning of it in some way, in the same way that uh, historians are often doing um, in writing. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and and just to get back into the the particulars of of this first performance, um, so I know there we've talked a bit about the Mr. Crowley um, character and the, the historical context there. Um, what about uh, Nancy Luce, this poet figure? Can you tell me a little bit about um, that as a perspective um, and and how that's complementing or challenging or or mixing up uh, you know what you're doing with the Crowley figure? Sure. So for this first performance, the theme was keepers of beasts. So we were particularly interested in animals and their human friends. Uh, so Nancy Luce was a woman who I first learned about from Steve Lubar, who told me um, about a collection of her papers at the Hay Library. Uh, so I went to look at them. And so Nancy Luce was a woman who was born in 1814. Uh, she lived on Martha's Vineyard in a very rural context. Um, and when she was in her 20s, she she fell sick. And it's a little bit unclear what her, her sickness was, but she was in pain constantly. Um, and her best friends were really her chickens that she kept her hens because she cared for them and then they laid eggs and she could sell the eggs. And so there was kind of this cycle of interdependence uh, where she really relied on them and cared for them greatly. Uh, so she started keeping journals and writing poems about her hens. And she also she created her own little booklets um, with fancy lettering that she designed, uh, often using she would often take notes on old scraps of wallpaper. She was not a wealthy woman at all. Um, she was basically on subsistence living. And so she eventually starts to sell her books of poetry, which earns her a great deal of notoriety. Uh, so, so visitors to Martha's uh, Vineyard and, and people on the island would come to her house and buy pictures of her and buy poems from her. And, and this is part of how she survived. But a certain number of them were also kind of cruel. And so she was mocked and made fun of and harassed in her house as well. Um, and so to me, the story became almost a parable of tourism in a way, um, kind of an allegory uh, for the modern age where she's relying on these visitors to buy things from her. But at the same time, it kind of and they are invading her privacy and her and her uh, house and her home in a way. Um, and so it's it's a very it's a tragic story. Um, in a lot of ways, but she has become kind of a folk hero in the modern era. So people go to her gravesite and leave little plastic chickens. Um, and so she is remembered. Wow. There, there, there's so, <laughs> I mean, again, there's, there's so much, uh, else to unpack there. And then to the, the way that you're bringing that in with the, the Crowley figure too, I think it's just really fascinating. Um, so when, I, and you talked a little bit about this. So like moving out of these traditional spaces or thinking of these as as, as sort of side projects. But um, have you also found that um, the kind of like making strange in these contexts has has come back into the more traditional academic spaces to to maybe think about ways of making those spaces a little bit more strange or different? Or, or do you find that, um, you know, there's just not as much sort of flexibility given the investments in argument, given the, the sort of professional tracks and things like that in those spaces? Oh, it's a good question. Um, so a few years back, there was a really uh, wonderful website called The Appendix, uh, which it still exists, although it's not updated with new articles anymore. But it was filled with many academics and um, uh, historians who were trying to write history in an experimental manner and make arguments through stories. Uh, so that was was really great, and you can still go and, and read it. Um, another person who talks about these kinds of things is uh, is Jill Lepore, um, who also uh, she is storytelling and making. She's kind of focusing on the story as a way of making an argument. Um, and so I think I hope that it's it's 
that this is going to become more common, uh, but but we'll see. Yeah, there are two there are two different audiences, or there there can often be two different audiences for for things. Um, and you would of course would write in a different way for for a specialist in the field versus uh, a more general public. I'm I'm curious too. <laughs> does the does the hay know what you're up to with with the sort of materials and stories? Uh, well, they certainly know that I was looking at Nancy Luce. Um, uh, I, I, you know, it's a good question. I should, I should perhaps loop them back in. Um, they might be interested in this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I know that in, in some of my experiences with archives, they are like, I was just recently in touch with a, an archive that I had gone to and they, they were curious about, Oh, where are you disseminating the work? Are you going to conferences and things like that? So it's, so it's really interesting to, you know, the answer to the question being, well, no, actually I did this performance with, you know, all these sort of soundscapes and things like that. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to, um, have you had experiences or thoughts on on archivists, professional archivists, people in these spaces and, um, you know, what they might – are they encouraging these kinds of, of explorations? Do you think they could do more in, in these sort of spaces or in their outreach to potential users of, uh, of their archival materials to, to think about creative applications of, of the materials that they're holding and keeping? Um, I think so. I mean, I think it's an interesting – it's – it could be an interesting public programming and just extending um, what archives do into this uh, kind of mysterious, artistic, performative space. So I certainly hope that uh, we would see more of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I know locally here in Providence, the Providence Public Library has an artist in residence program um, that, that sort of does some interesting work there, too. But but I think like you, it's, it's not something that um, I see a lot of, uh, you know, despite the fact that archival materials and, and objects and contexts do play a really key role in, in the sort of, uh, you know, imaginaries and, and stories that are told in other non-academic contexts, for sure. Um, so what's next for this project? I mean, did you, uh, I know you talked a little bit about how there was more sort of Q&A and interaction, and that's that's having you think about, um, you know, less less or more information to give. But are you, are you envisioning this as a series of explorations, as something where you're kind of modifying and, and revising these two particular stories? Uh, sure. So we hope that the Phantom Archive will be a banner for many different stories. I have a running list of just people, incidents, uh, events, places that I would love to explore more in this in this manner. Uh, and so hopefully, so this year I've been on the dissertation research trail for the most part, but hopefully once um, things have settled down and I'm not traveling so much, we'll be able to do a little bit more of this. And we'd like for it to be a, a continued side project. Um, we would actually like to kind of bring it into maybe underground music spaces. So where there's a show of, say, punk bands or local indie bands, we could kind of do our set, our Phantom Archive set of 20 minutes of a story. Um, another thing we would really like to do is start using 35 millimeter slides um, as opposed to digital, just to kind of continue that that uh, kind of physical feeling, that, um, that analog feeling of just being in a room with these things, like the, the click of the projector, you know, that, that kind of old school... Um, uh, lecture art history lecture vibe perhaps we could kind of bring into it a little bit more so we'll be thinking of ways to to tweak the experience uh bring it into new spaces and expand the range of stories uh, that we are telling 
Great. Um, and and that particular interest in in older forms of materiality and 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 performance um, for you was that was the Jenks Museum experience the the sort of catalyst for getting interested in all this, or did you bring uh, interest in that from an early age? Like, what was the what were the sort of precursors to to getting really interested in kind of non digital or, or earlier forms of technology? Sure. Um, well. I've- I've always kind of been interested in forgotten things and obsolete, uh, obsolete forms. And, you know, I'm working on a dissertation on phrenology. So like obsolete knowledge. Um, and I think there's something about, uh, these older technologies now that just, that seems a little bit more, that somehow seems special to experience because it's become so unusual. Um, and, I just, I think I aesthetically really like it. And I think, yes, the Jinx Museum was an, it was a huge influence on this as well um, in my work with um, Mark Dion, because as an artist, if you look into his work, uh, this is a lot of his aesthetic too. Well, I mean, I look forward to to you hearing more and, and, and seeing more and experiencing more of the, the historical storytelling and then also the, um, the maybe for lack of a better word, more traditional academic storytelling um, that you're doing on your uh, your dissertation. So best of luck completing that. Um, and uh, uh, do you have a, a sort of near um, plans for a, a future performance coming up after, uh, you know, this initial one? Or you just taking some time um, to do the dissertation? Yeah, exactly. So when I come back, possibly over the summer, we'll start organizing for our next event and our next round of stories. So, uh, yeah, hopefully sometime in the uh, then we'll have uh, we'll have more opportunities to experience the Phantom Archive. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, we we definitely here um, at Public Work look forward to to hearing more about the Phantom Archive and, and seeing more of the stuff that you and your collaborators come up with. So thanks a lot for taking the time to talk. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Public Work. You can find us on Twitter at PublicWorkPod or email us at publicworkpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.